This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. Hi, my name is Jeremy Haig, psychic medium, tarot reader, and proud nerd of the occult and the spiritual. I've been talking to the dead since before I can remember. Hearing their stories and listening to their lessons radically changed my life and taught me to become more curious and peel back the layers of the world around me. On this podcast, I invite you on a journey as we discuss spirituality hot topics with specialists and practitioners from across the witchcraft community, pull and explore monthly collective tarot readings, and recount lost or forgotten paranormal stories from around the world. This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. December 7th, 1941. Pearl Harbor is attacked and the United States soon enters the war. On December 22nd, leaders of Great Britain and the United States met to discuss possible strategies. It was during this meeting that Prime Minister Winston Churchill suggested that the two Cunard ladies, the RMS Queen Mary and RMS Queen Elizabeth, be used in tandem to transport American troops to their military hubs located in Sydney. The U.S. Army Chief of Staff at the time was General George C. Marshall, who was extremely impressed with the Queen Mary and her fittings. He couldn't believe that she was capable of carrying upwards of 5,000 troops, having been designed to carry only about half that many in traditional passengers. But Churchill wanted to fit more. He believed that entire divisions could fit on each ship, a number in the 15,000s. Upon hearing this, the Army Chief of Staff replied, If you had to give the order, Mr. Churchill, would you take the risk and send a division of men on this ship, knowing that if it were torpedoed, there would only be lifeboats for a fraction of that number? Without hesitation, Churchill replied, Yes, if it would shorten the war a single day. Churchill's plan was enacted, and on February 18th, 1942, the Queen Mary set sail from Boston, Massachusetts, bearing over 14,000 American troops. June 1942. German Field Marshal Erwin Rommel and his Regiment of Africa Corps had cornered the British 8th Army on the coast of the Mediterranean. They could see a large ship plowing towards them on the horizon. Speeding forward with her four steam-powered engines roaring, the Queen Mary arrived and delivered an additional 10,000 troops to the battle, overpowering Rommel's forces and taking back British control over the Mediterranean. For the first time, the Queen Mary had decided the fate of a key battle in war. Hitler was terrified. Never before to this moment in history had a ship been capable of carrying more than 10,000 troops at a single time. Both Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth were doing it with ease. A bounty was put out on the two ships. Any submarine captain who could sink either of the Cunard ladies would be rewarded with the equivalent of 1 million Reichsmarks and the Iron Cross. 
The queens were hunted like rare animals all over the surface of the globe, but none were ever successful. Life aboard the Queen Mary during World War II was not without its challenges. You see, the Queen Mary was designed for transporting passengers throughout the chilly North Atlantic. It had never been exposed to the heat of the tropics before. As such, the only rooms on the ship that were equipped with cool air conditioning were the large public rooms, dining halls, smoking rooms, and lounges. All the other spaces, hallways, cabins, and staterooms, were only equipped with basic ventilation. As the Queen Mary would transport troops to and from the Suez Canal and surrounding areas, the hot desert air would be pumped through the ventilation, causing the interior of the ship to reach temperatures upwards of 43 degrees Celsius, or 110 degrees Fahrenheit. We are aware that countless men and women suffered severe heat stroke during these conditions, but the death toll has never been publicly released. One might suggest that perhaps they just enjoy the two pools on board, but at this point both had been drained and were used for bunk bed installations. Overall, there was no space to breathe or think on board. A stateroom, typically used to house two people during normal business, would likely have as many as twelve soldiers squished in it at a time on metal cots. In many areas of the ship, the cot bunks were only allotted eighteen inches between them, meaning that there was only enough room to slide into bed on your back. Side sleeping was absolutely out of the question. Still today, you can find hints and clues of the Queen Mary's life as a military transport ship. Countless initials from Australian troops have been carved into the undersides of cabinets and drawers for us to discover. Even still, despite the influx of cots and bunk beds, there weren't nearly enough spaces for everyone on board to have their own bed. So the troops operated on a system called hot racking, or hotbed. Basically, the troops would be given a six-hour shift assigned to each of the bunks, barely enough time to settle and get a good night's sleep, before they were expected to give up their spot for the next man in line. For this reason, many opted to sleep on the deck of the ship instead, which was often more comfortable anyway. While the tropic heat was intense, the breeze from Queen Mary's speed was often enough to provide some relief in sleeping hours. With the massive numbers of bodies on one ship, a ship already notorious for rocking in the ocean anyway, keeping people organized so as to not have too many people in one area of the ship at a time was challenging, to say the least. But there was a system. The ship was divided into three sections. Red, white, and blue. Each soldier was given a colored button, according to their placement, and could not leave that area without direct orders. The red section was stationed up from the bow to the first-class forward staircase. Blue went from the second-class forward staircase to the stern, and finally, white filled in the section in the middle that connected the two. Two meals were served per day in what was formerly the first-class main restaurant, a space designed to seat all 800 first-class passengers and now refitted with bench seating to hold 2,000 men at a time. This meant that in order to feed all of the troops, six different meal sittings were required per day, with a maximum of 45 minutes between sitting times. Breakfast was slotted from 6.30 to 11 a.m., and dinner commenced at 3 p.m. and concluded at 7.30. With only one meat slicer aboard to cut all of the breakfast ham, 
It is said that the meat slicer on the Queen Mary would be running 24-7 the entire four-day voyage across the ocean to keep up. But the food on the Queen Mary rivaled that of any military ship or camp in the world and became one of the primary reasons that, despite being squished on board like sardines, the Queen Mary was the preferred choice of the sailors when it came to crossing the ocean. The galleys, or kitchens, were wildly larger than any other ship in existence, coupled with the largest refrigeration space ever installed, with the exception of her sister, the Queen Elizabeth. While most other transports were lucky to be stocked with enough canned goods to make the journey, the Queen Mary was often loaded to the brim with fresh fruits, meats, and vegetables for the voyage across the sea. Towards the end of World War II, as Japanese presence in the South Pacific increased, the Queen Mary was forced to abandon her runs between Australia and instead returned to focusing on her North Atlantic run, ferrying troops from New York to the River Clyde in Scotland, her birthplace. But her part in the war was far from over. In April of 1942, she was tasked with yet another heroic mission by the United States Pentagon, Operation Bolero. Operation Bolero was a mission designed to move over one million U.S. troops to the European mainland in an effort to once and for all overwhelm the Axis powers. It required every single available troop that the U.S. still had and the massive Cunard Queens in tow. Leading the fleet, powering through the roaring surf, was their flagship, the RMS Queen Mary, followed by other liners like the Elizabeth, the Aquitania, and the Mauritania. Watching her plow through the surf, pilot Raymond Rhodes remarked, quote, From the wake she left, we had to keep reminding ourselves that she was a thing made of steel. October 22nd, 1942. The Queen Mary was unfortunately involved in an event so tragic, both the U.S. and British governments sought to keep it a secret until the end of the war. Quote, it was 1942, and I was 22 years old and a seaman in the Merchant Navy on the Queen Mary, writes Alfred Johnson, a soldier aboard the Queen Mary. We were returning to Glasgow from New York, which was a four to five day journey. The Queen Mary was carrying about 20,000 American troops to join the Allied forces. There were two of us on the aft of the ship, and we were manning a six-inch gun, in case we came under attack. What good we could have done with one gun, I have no idea. A cruiser named HMS Curacoa met us 200 miles off the coast to escort us into port. We could see our escort zigzagging in front of us, it was common for the ships and cruisers to zigzag to confuse the U-boats. In this particular case, however, the escort was very, very close to us. I said to my mate, you know, she's zigzagging all over the place in front of us. I'm sure we're going to hit her. The HMS Curacoa came alongside the Queen Mary traveling about 25 knots. Captain Boutwood was well aware that the Queen Mary would eventually take over the cruiser. But the problem came in the misunderstanding of Mary's course. As she turned in her zigzagging course, the officers remained confident that the Curacoa would adjust its own course, being that the Mary took precedence. Meanwhile, aboard the Curacoa, it was assumed that Mary would be the one to steer away and adjust her course, since the escort had the right of way. As the two ships inched closer and closer, clearly on a collision path, it was far too late for anyone else to adjust. Quote, and sure enough, the Queen Mary sliced the cruiser in two like a piece of butter, Alfred Johnson continues, straight through the six-inch armored plating. 
The cursed Soa was sliced in half. The men aboard the Queen Mary watched in horror, and the entire vessel shuddered upon impact. Many of those lucky enough to escape the wreck of the Kurosawa alive were sucked beneath the Mary's hull and into her 20-foot propellers. The scene was horrific. Though the Mary alerted the nearest Royal Navy vessels of the incident, it took many hours for a convoy ship to arrive. In the end, the collision claimed the lives of 360 of the Kurosawa's 450-man complement. Alfred Johnson continues, The Queen Mary just kept going. We were doing about 25 knots, you see. It was the policy not to stop and pick up survivors, even if they were waving at you. It was too dangerous, as the threat of U-boats was always present. My mate and I wanted to do something, so after the collision, I said to my mate, Come on, let's sling this over, and we released the cork life raft into the sea. Whether anyone from the cruiser managed to climb aboard the raft, I have no idea. The Queen Mary continued on her journey, according to her orders, dropped anchor and discharged her American soldiers. In her wake, a tragedy was unfolding behind her in the Atlantic. The case went to court many years later in 1949, and the Queen Mary was exonerated of blame, and the whole event was forgotten. Upon Mary's arrival in Scotland, the bow was inspected to determine the extent of the damage. While the very front had been crumpled and crushed, the water had not been able to penetrate through the double hull, which may have single-handedly kept her from sinking. But it was far too dangerous to repair her in Europe, so immediately she was sent back to Boston, where she limped into a dry dock and had her full damage repaired. Not long after, she was refloated and ready for duty once more. Queen Mary, while loved by her passengers, developed another ominous yet endearing nickname throughout her many years of service, the Rolling Mary. Now, all ships roll, but the Queen Mary rolls a little more aggressively than most, and was easy to roll even during a mild sea. Some of her stewards on board remarked that she was quick to roll milk out of a cup of tea, even during a stiff breeze. Her metacentric height was not low enough in the water, and there is a reason for this. The Queen Mary was originally designed and constructed to carry a total of 27 double-ended scotch boilers, but that's not what was actually installed. In the final years of construction, the Cunard line decided that instead, they wanted to use Yarrow boilers, significantly more fuel-efficient and significantly lighter overall, causing the Queen Mary to be extremely top-heavy. Now, couple that with 16,000 troops on the upper deck, and the Queen Mary was vomit central. Her rolling yeeted several soldiers over her railings on fairly calm days when people were just playing on the deck and into the frigid ocean on many more than just one occasion. And you betcha, nobody was allowed to stop. The 20 miles of Bakelite handrails that you see throughout the Queen Mary today were added retroactively as a result of her rolling nature. The ship finally met its ultimate test, one that threatened the lives of everyone on board in December of 1942. The Queen Mary was making her usual transport to Scotland, carrying 16,000 troops. Along the way, she sailed into a horrendous storm that created swells of up to 65 feet tall and gale-force winds that threatened to pull her apart piece by piece. As she crashed through the deep troughs of the waves, she encountered a rogue wave larger than any she had ever experienced before. It towered above her over 90 feet tall and slammed directly into her starboard side, ripping off lifeboats, 
smashing the windows of the bridge and punching out a number of the portholes. The force of the wave caused the Queen Mary to tip 52 degrees off vertical. Two more degrees, and she would have most certainly capsized, killing most, if not everyone, on board. Driven forward by her incredibly powerful engines, the Queen Mary forced herself back to upright and sailed on. Inside, countless of the soldiers aboard had either been washed into the hallways or severely injured upon impact. Panic swept through the ship as they assumed they'd been hit by a torpedo, and most of the GIs headed to the main decks, donning their life jackets. This incident will go down as the greatest possible disaster that the Queen Mary was able to overcome. While always breaking her own records to that point, the Queen Mary finally set what has continued to be the record for the most people ever aboard a single ship to this day on July 25th, 1943. She set sail with a grand total of 16,683 souls aboard. No other vessel in human history even comes close. She still holds that record today. Not long after, on August 4th, 1943, Churchill and other British war officials were traveling to Quebec to attend a planning conference for the Normandy invasion. They converted the third-class smoking room into a planning office where they could rehearse their presentation for the Allied Committee. Every time I say that sentence, it blows my mind that you can visit the Queen Mary and stand in what was once the third-class smoking room then a war office for the D-Day invasion, and now an exhibit about the incredible and uh, avant-garde, almost, fire prevention techniques that were available along the Queen Mary. It's just one of those spaces that you can stand in, and it's just overwhelming to think about the amount of history that took place there. Churchill desperately wanted to test out mock-ups for his proposed Mulberry Harbors, temporary structures which would allow for a massive amount of vessels involved in the invasion to unload their supplies and people more quickly onto the beaches of Normandy. In order to test them before presenting his ideas to the Allies, Churchill and his admiral went up to his stateroom bathroom, where they experimented by creating a makeshift model of the beach in his bathtub. Again, you can visit this bathtub in the stateroom on one of the main decks of the Queen Mary, and you are living in a room where D-Day was rehearsed and dreamed. It's just, it's just, it's insane. It's so crazy. They continued to test these models, his admiral creating the waves in the water with his hands until 2 a.m. Upon their arrival in Quebec, Churchill had completed the plans for all the final battles of the war. Churchill himself thanked the ship and credited it for shortening the war by at least a year. By the end of World War II, the ship had carried more than 810,730 troops, almost a million, traveled more than 600,000 miles, and played a significant role in virtually every major Allied campaign. She had survived a collision at sea, set the record for carrying the most people ever on a floating vessel, and participated in the D-Day invasion. At the close of the war, the ship began to transport more than 22,000 war brides and their children to the United States and Canada. Known as the Bride and Baby Voyages, she made 13 trips for this purpose in 1946. The kitchens during these voyages were kept busy around the clock preparing warm baby formula. Following the war, Queen Mary was refitted for passenger service, and along with the Queen Elizabeth commenced her two-ship transatlantic passenger service for which the two ships were initially built. 
It took nine months between 1946 and 1947, and what has been described as, quote, the largest reconversion job ever undertaken on a merchant ship to restore her. All of her silverware, furniture, artwork, furnishings, carpeting, everything which had been stored in facilities all over the world were carefully shipped back to Southampton, where they were reinstalled. By July 31st, 1947, she was returned to peacetime service as the Queen of the North Atlantic. During her refitting back to a transportation vessel, it was shocking to discover how little vandalism and damage she had received during her six years of service to the British Admiralty. The ship's master during the war, Commodore Bissett of the British Merchant Navy, had made it a personal rule to speak to each and every soldier aboard at the beginning of every voyage. He would explain the importance of the ship and the rarity of her exotic wood paneling and artwork. His plea set an expectation that followed the ship throughout her entire six years not to deface her. He even offered them an alternative, encouraging them instead to carve their names and messages onto the ship's teak decking to leave behind. The Commodore asked the Cunard Line to keep the decking so future generations can explore the thousands of messages that were left by the soldiers during her time of war. And while unfortunately the decking has since been sanded and restored, a six-foot section was donated to the U.S. Army archives. The two ships dominated the transatlantic passenger transportation market until the dawn of the jet age in the late 1950s. By the early 1960s, transatlantic cruises were already falling out of fashion due to air travel becoming more affordable to the masses. In 1963, the ship began a series of occasional cruises, first to the Canary Islands and later to the Bahamas. However, without central air conditioning, outdoor pools, and other amenities now commonplace on cruise ships, she proved ill-suited for the work. In 1967, she was withdrawn from service after more than 1,000 transatlantic crossings. A lot of people noted during those last few years that she was running that often the crew, typically about 1,000 people, would uh, outnumber her passengers. And for quite a while, both the two Cunard queens were operating at a loss as far as financials. And so eventually it did make sense that she had to be closed. But there was someone else who was still enamored with the Queen Mary and the magic of the steam-powered world one who might have a chance to give her a new lease on life, quite literally. That individual was Walt Disney. Hey, Paranormal Weirdos. I truly hope you're enjoying this week's episode so far. If you're enjoying When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, I humbly welcome you to consider making a financial contribution to the When Walls Can Talk tip jar to ensure I can continue to create episodes like this one for seasons to come. Your financial support helps to cover operating costs like recording equipment, editing software, marketing materials, music rights, and helps with the purchase of books, historical publications, and research materials to ensure that every episode is as professional and as well-constructed as we possibly can. If you're interested in making a small contribution, and let me tell you that no amount is too little, please feel free to hop on over to PayPal where you can tip us through my email, jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com or on Cash App through money sign Jeremy Hegg. That's money sign J-E-R-E-M-Y-H-A-I-G. There's also a support link in the show notes for this and every episode where you can support us directly as well. 
Thank you so much for listening to my little sales pitch and for sticking with me through this episode so far. And now, let's get back to the show. Disney and his wife Lillian fell in love with the exuberant art deco atmosphere and charm that could be found on the Queen Mary. When traveling back and forth from Europe, he would be known to spend his mornings taking long strolls on the promenade deck, and in the afternoons, he would take high tea with his wife in the first-class lounge. Later on in the evening, he would pore over scripts and projects in the smoking lounge over a cigar. Lillian and their daughters would often frequent the library, selecting options to read and then bringing them to the lounge to enjoy together as a family. The magic of the Queen Mary, so to speak, was not lost on them. In 1966, the Cunard Line would announce that the ship would soon be going up for auction, but Disney would pass away later that same year, several months before the auction could be held. Did Disney have intentions of purchasing the beloved RMS Queen Mary? Unfortunately, we will never know, as Disney was notorious for keeping decisions like these very close to his chest. But it makes sense. If word got out that Disney had intentions of owning the ship and capitalizing on its rich history, opening bids and interested parties in buying it would have increased astronomically. That very same year, the Queen Mary was sold for $3.45 million to the city of Long Beach, California, for use as a maritime museum and hotel. On December 9th, 1967, she made her final voyage to to Long Beach, rounding the Cape of Good Hope as there was not a prayer in the world that she would have made it through the Panama Canal. After 1,001 successful Atlantic crossings, she was permanently docked and soon became the luxury hotel that she is today. While anchored in Long Beach, the city leased the ship and its surrounding property to many different companies and corporations, including the Jack Rather Corporation, on a 66-year lease starting in 1980. Not only did they manage and operate the ship, but the company also brought in more business by constructing a special structure to house and display Howard Hughes H-4 Hercules right next to the Queen Mary. Ironically, Jack Rather also owned and operated the rights to the Disneyland Hotel. Jack Rather and Walt Disney were friends and neighbors, and as Walt was hard at work building his amusement park, he was desperate to have a high-quality place for his visitors to stay in the neighborhood as well. However, with all his money sank into the park, he simply couldn't afford it. Instead, he convinced Jack to lease the land with full rights to the Disneyland name, thus Disneyland Hotel. Later, after Rather's death, the hotel began to show signs of neglect and abandon. The Disney company couldn't afford to have its name attached to a failing hotel, so instead, they opted to purchase the entire Jack Rather company to the tune of $152 million, just so they could retain control of the Disneyland Hotel, whose sign stands just outside the park of the same name. I guess reputation really is everything in this industry, so I suppose it makes sense. The purchase also meant that Disney now held the lease to the Queen Mary and its surrounding properties. Disney began an extensive overhaul of the ship, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars refreshing hotel rooms, adding more specialty shops and snack bars, 
upgrading the ship's fine dining, and even began having hired actors dressed as famous celebrity passengers walking about the decks. For the first fiscal year under Disney's control, traffic did double, but despite all their best efforts, those numbers quickly began to decline. In 1990, Disney made a bold announcement that they were going to be building a new ocean theme park and resort around the Queen Mary, celebrating maritime history and culture, called Port Disney. Now, while the extensive back-and-forth history on this park and its development are wildly fascinating, and I mean it, wildly fascinating, and absolutely worth the deep dive that I'm dying to do right now to cover it, for the purposes of today's episode, which is already a doozy, being in two parts, I think it would take us wildly off track. So suffice to say, Port Disney was a multi-billion dollar attempt on the part of the Disney company to make the Queen Mary and the surrounding area a successful tourist area. Now, in order to practically make a tourist attraction like Port Disney a reality, the infrastructure of the surrounding city of Long Beach would need to be extensively upgraded. I'm talking freeways, sewers, streets, bridges, all of it. When those plans were presented to the city of Long Beach, however, in the hopes that the government would help fund the necessary infrastructure expansions to encourage other companies to, like Disney to continue to bring entertainment tourism to the area, um, something the city of Anaheim had happily done for previous park expansions in California, um, they happily took on that cost to encourage Disney to continue to expand and grow, the city of Long Beach was not interested in the slightest. Not only were they not willing to assist Disney in any way towards the creation of Port Disney, but they were unwilling to even repair existing potholes in the road around the Queen Mary. Despite the possibility of what a Disney park might do to the city and economy, Long Beach told Disney to pay for their own roads and plumbing if they wanted to do it. It wasn't just the government and city officials that were giving Disney the cold shoulder either. Even the residents of Long Beach didn't seem too keen on the idea. And so, after continued failed efforts, the Disney company announced in 1992 that they were going to be breaking their lease with the city of Long Beach and selling off the H4 Hercules, effectively ending any hope of a Queen Mary Disney attraction. In the end, most of the ideas for Port Disney were actually taken over to the Tokyo Disneyland Resort, constructing the Disney Sea theme park instead, which features a long ship called the SS Columbia, with striking similarities to the look, feel, and style of the Queen Mary. Internationally recognized, the historic floating hotel and museum attracts thousands of visitors every year. It has also attracted a number of other types of guests, too. Those in search of unearthly passengers still trapped within its creaking boards. Some say the Queen Mary is one of the most haunted places in the world, with as many as 150 known spirits lurking upon the ship. Over the past 60 years, the Queen Mary has been the site of at least 49 reported deaths, not to mention having gone through the terrors of war, so it comes as no surprise that spectral spirits of her vivid past continue to walk within her rooms and hallways. With the uptick in public interest in the paranormal during the 1980s and 1990s, paranormal reality television exploded, and as early as the early 2000s, paranormal investigations were being televised in many locations just like the Queen Mary and capturing astounding evidence. But as of 1988, Disney still maintained full control of the Queen Mary, while having no interest in actually putting their name or identity behind it due to a significant lack of trust in its profitability. Shockingly enough, within the marketing team for Disney itself, 
came an idea. What if we were to market the stately old ship as being a hotspot for the paranormal? Wouldn't that drastically increase her profitability and attendance? Now, stories of ghostly apparitions were not uncommon already among the staff at this time, so do not get me wrong. And it wouldn't take a huge amount of effort to convince the general public that it was haunted. Now, that's not to say that this marketing decision on the part of Disney was a particularly sound one. We are already in a period of time where the Disney company is making several massive and probably the most massive mistakes they ever made, like multi-billion dollar mistakes. Pause this and go do a little research into Disney's MGM Studios in Florida and Euro Disneyland Resort in France, and you'll see what I mean. Again, those are absolutely worth the deep dive, and I have a lot to say on them because I actually find the dark underside of Disney's history quite fascinating, but that's for a different podcast, so I'll leave that alone. All in all, Disney was floundering and was trying anything that they could to make some money. In 1988 or 89, a group of cleaning ladies were preparing the third-class garden lounge on the main deck when a woman was spotted sitting at a table. She was wearing a red dress, and when asked to leave in order that the cleaning ladies could do their work, she neither responded nor reacted. In time, she simply just faded away, and the cleaning lady quit on the spot. There are several other stories just like this one told on tours of the ship, all of which take place in 1989. It just so happens that this was also the year that Disney decided to allow and encourage the identity of the Queen Mary as a haunted ship. Two more popular spots for the Queen's otherworldly guests are its first and second class swimming pools. Scary tales abound within this elegant and totally swank swimming pool area, though neither are utilized today for their original purpose, but spirits are seemingly not aware of this. In the first class swimming pool, which has been closed for more than three decades, women have been seen appearing in 1930s style swimming suits, wandering the decks near the pool and diving into her vacant depths. Others have reported the sounds of splashing and spied wet footprints leading from the deck to the changing rooms. Some have also spied the spirit of a young girl clutching her teddy bear. In the second-class pool room, the spirit of another little girl, famously named Jackie, is often seen and heard. I have seen lots of different television shows cover Jackie and capture really astounding and quite perplexing evidence of her responsiveness. Allegedly, the unfortunate girl drowned in the pool during the ship's sailing days and reportedly refused to move on, as her voice, as well as the sounds of laughter, have been captured here often. However, author and paranormal investigator Cher Garmond points out that, that there are no known drownings to have ever occurred on the ship, although she agrees that Jackie is there. Other contradictory rumors claim that the story of Jackie, along with the lady in the red dress from 1989, are both stories fabricated by the Disney company as part of its haunted marketing campaign. But who could really know? The pool has been closed for many years due to California safety codes and was undergoing refurbishment in recent years. But until then, its past lives seemed to congregate around this first-class watering hole. In fact, due to the ceiling's quartz construction, this area is thought to be a vortex that encourages and energizes spirits, especially in the dressing room areas. Recently, plexiglass was installed so guests could take a peek inside. Workers report hearing children's voices around the pool. A woman in light-colored clothing has also been spotted standing alone against a pillar under the balcony. 
I also found a YouTube video with an interview with um, somebody who used to work there. I think he was actually like a general manager for the hotel. I, I think he had a fairly significant role uh, describing an incident where he went to the pool and was leaning over it to try and look at something and felt quite clearly a strong shove against his waist, pushing him into the empty pool area. But just as soon as he reached that moment where he would have lost his balance, he felt someone grab the back of his shirt and pull him back up again, um, changed his life. Um, and there are quite a few others. I found another uh, video with a former tour guide who worked on the Queen Mary for 10 years and she experienced something in the boiler area where uh, looking up, she saw uh, a child's face emerge from the shadows made out of mist, completely transparent, just the face. And she asked the the child what uh, what she was doing there. And she said, if I believe, I, I hate to mess this up, I believe she said something to the effect of she was looking for her mother or she was sent here f- to find her mother. And As soon as she finished making that statement, her face contorted in in terror and she screamed and the tour guide watched as this black mist engulfed her face and then she was yanked backwards through the boiler room. And to the point where this interview had been released, she had never ever said publicly that that was the reason why she left after 10 years of serving as a tour guide. The ship was very beloved to her. So there are many, many, many countless, countless stories that I, I just couldn't find all of them to tell them all of staff experiencing things. Now, moving on from the pool areas, I literally could not do an episode on the Queen Mary and not cover its most one of its most notorious and infamous rooms, a room number synonymous for most paranormal enthusiasts with the Queen Mary itself. Like room 237 in The Shining for the Queen Mary, this would be room B340. It is believed that the first haunting ever reported within the Queen Mary was from a woman who stayed in this room during the final years of its transatlantic circuit. She returned to her room after spending the evening in the ship's lounges and was roused from her sleep by a man with red eyes standing at the edge of her bed. Another story surrounding this room recounts how a particularly aggressive and violent man was held in this room until the master-at-arms could find a place to keep him. When they returned to collect him, they discovered him dead in a bloody, dismembered heap. Stories abound as to who died in that room or what dark mysteries occurred. Following his death in stateroom B340, he became known as Samuel the Savage. Another man, Walter J. Adamson from Britain, is said to have died in this room as well. His cause of death was never determined. Over the decades, overnight guests have complained to hear knocking on their door in the middle of the night. (laughs) Makes sense. Faucets in the bathroom turn on and off, as do the lights. Bathroom doors slam themselves shut, and people have said their bed covers have been yanked off during the night. Now, I don't know how to say this without breaking people's hearts, but B340 is more than like, well, B340 was more than likely not haunted at this moment in time. And here's why. The Walt Disney Company decided to transform the room B340 into one of its own haunted attractions. This room was fitted with doors that could open and close themselves, faucets that could turn themselves on and off, and walls that could knock from inside. When Disney operated this room, they would bring people in and scare them. However, when Disney finally left the Queen Mary for good, they thought they had turned off all of the effects with which the room had been staged. But they hadn't. 
So for years following, people staying in this room were experiencing the haunted attraction left on by Walt Disney. So it's no wonder that the ship developed such a reputation and so quickly. The room even was equipped with a form of hologram to show a ghostly sailor wandering through the room that would happen on rare occasions. So many skeptics shrug off these stories in particular as more being fabrications by the Disney company to push a paranormal agenda on the Queen Mary to rent out more rooms. And more than likely in this case, this is true. However, that's not to say that the collective energies of everybody coming to the hotel looking for it, searching for it. If you listen to Amy Bruni's episode, she talks about this and how she stayed in that room. She spent hours in the Estes Method SB7 Spirit Box experiment where you cover your eyes and use a special completely noise-deadening set of headphones, ones that's similar to what drummers use to record in studios to completely wipe out all noise. And basically, you pump an SB7 spirit box, which go back and listen to the Paranormal Investigation 101 episode with Christy Price when we talk about the different pieces of technology that you can use. But essentially, SB7 spirit spirit box scans through all of the different AM, FM frequencies at a rate of multiple per second. So never long enough that an entire uh, piece of information could come through. But it's believed that spirits are able to manipulate the frequencies and, and kind of use that scanning as a way for their own voice or sound or communication to come through. And because of how fast it's scanning, it it does make sense that any sound that extends beyond a a tenth of a second or, or a second or so would more than likely have to be some form of phenomena because the device wouldn't be able to pick up the same voice tone and frequency across multiple sweeps uh, at the same time. So that's also why you will, if you watch paranormal investigation shows, you'll see they'll say things like class A EVP, which has like vocal tone across multiple sweeps. Anywho, many people have spent hours under that form of, uh, Scanning, where basically you put that those headphones right on your ear, block out your eyes, so you are restricting all of your other senses except your ears. And it's interesting because people can have a conversation with you, and you will be responding because basically you just say aloud whatever the spirit box is saying to you, whatever words, phrases, emotions, whatever it's, whatever sounds you're hearing. People might be having a full conversation with you. The rest of the investigators in the room might be asking you questions. Um, like, who are you? What do you want? Do you know you're dead? Do you know uh, what, what era it is? Um, or what, what's happened to you? Are you afraid? And you might be responding intelligently to those questions and have absolutely no idea. Um, that's also why if you ever see somebody using like earbuds or like regular overhead headphones to do that, they're probably not doing the experiment correctly because you really have to use a particular type of 25 hertz canceling. Um, Anyway, I digress. But people have spent so much time investigating and hunting for something in this room and truly believing it. And in many cases, the collective combined will of everyone searching for this thing will often create the entity that you're searching for. Many people believe that Jackie, who is rumored to also be a story that the Disneyland Corporation created, but That's not to say that Jackie hasn't been one of the most seen apparitions on the boat, which means that the collective will and energy of everybody looking for her may have created her. Or, even more troubling, 
Perhaps there is something more dark and malevolent on the boat that knows about Jackie and knows that people are hunting for her and use her appearance and her uh, responses as a way to get trust from investigators and guests alike, which is an extremely troubling question. So while many stories have been debunked as stories that were created and pushed by the Walt Disney Company, I would argue that perhaps while being some of the biggest paranormal stories on the boat, because of the support that being sanctioned by the Disney company would give it, that's not to say that there aren't countless, countless others that are very true. I do believe that there are over 150 known spirits on the ship by name. And those who live and work there full time experience them regularly, especially those who have been living on the Queen Mary since it's been closed. It's been closed to the public throughout the pandemic. And now more than ever, the energy on the ship is absolutely insane. Many believe that the paranormal on the ship has taken a bit of a dark turn since its closure. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens as doors reopen. But moving on, more unnerving phenomena have been reported in one of the kitchens. During World War II, when the ship was used as a troop transport, a brawl erupted in the galley, and a cook was shoved into an oven and burned to death. Now, near the site of his death, light switches turn themselves on and off regularly, dishes move around the kitchen under their own power, and utensils mysteriously vanish. Other ship-borne phantoms include an elegantly dressed woman in white who hangs around the salon's piano, a ghostly officer who walks near the bridge, and a black-bearded man in coveralls who rides the engine room escalator. The latter is thought to be the spirit of John Petter, an 18-year-old seaman who was crushed to death by a watertight door during a routine drill on July 10th, 1966. Do you remember that door 13 I mentioned at the beginning of the episode? Well, located 50 feet below water level is the Queen Mary's engine room, which is said to be a hotbed of paranormal activity. For some reason, the engine room area is the most haunted place on the ship. Staff members and tour guides who go there report clanging and knocking sounds, chains being whipped and dangled by unseen hands, and balls of light moving slowly across the walls. Tom Hennessy, a Long Beach Press telegram columnist who was initially skeptical about the ghosts of the Queen Mary, spent a night near the ship's engine room and came out a believer. During his stay, he was menaced by moving oil drums felt the vibrations of some invisible presence walking towards him on a catwalk, and heard clanging sounds that stopped when he approached them. Hennessy's eeriest experience came at 3.33 a.m. during the witching hour, when he heard two or three men talking in the deserted propeller shaft room. He distinctly made out the words, quote, turning the lights off from one of them. A security guard who had monitored the area later told him that no living people had been near the shaft room when he heard the conversation and said that other people had heard ghostly voices there as well. Used in the filming of the Poseidon Adventure, the room's infamous Door 13 crushed at least two men to death at different points during the ship's history. The more recent death, during a routine watertight door drill in 1966, crushed an 18-year-old crew member by the name of John Petter, or J.P., the young man has often been spied walking the length of Shaft Alley before disappearing by door 13. The story goes that in 1967, or some say 1966, he was possibly playing a game of chicken whereby someone would press the button to close the hatch door. He and others would make the jump through the hatch door as it was closing. 
It's also reported that the incident happened during a standard emergency drill, and he still tried to jump through the hatch, but didn't make it. Either way, poor JP didn't make the jump through the electronic hatch in time. Despite medical efforts to save him, his torso was completely crushed. Those who visit the engine room claim to see a man dressed in white workers' overalls and whistling a tune. This was the one that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. I saw footage of this door, door 13, and immediately felt the presence of a lot of different entities in the area. It's, it's, it's palpable, really palpable. Something else happened to another engineer. This time, the man apparently by accident drank from a bottle of acid, thinking it was gin. Spirits of both men have been reported seen in that vicinity. One man, thought to be JP, has even approached people to ask if they had seen his misplaced wrench. Located about 45 feet below the water, the boiler room is one of the most dangerous places on the Queen Mary. Ghost tales abound in this creepy area that include a little girl and her doll wandering about, EVPs or electronic voice phenomenon, and shadow figures appearing and disappearing near the catwalks. Another super creepy area of the ship that you can see covered in detail on BuzzFeed Unsolved's episode about the Queen Mary is the forward area to store the mooring ropes. Several people are said to haunt the spot as it is the closest spot to where the Queen Mary would have made contact with the HMS Kurosawa. In the Queen's Salon, which once served as the ship's first-class lounge, a beautiful young woman in an elegant white evening gown has often been seen dancing alone in the shadows in the corner of the room. Yet more odd occurrences have been made in a number of first-class staterooms. Here, reports have been made of a tall, dark-haired man appearing in a 1930s-style suit, as well as water running and lights turning on in the middle of the night, phones ringing in the early morning hours with no one on the other line. In the third-class children's playroom, a baby's cry has often been heard, which is thought to be the infant boy who died shortly after his birth on the boat. These are but a few of the many reports of apparitions and strange events occurring at this luxury liner-turned-hotel. It's incredible to realize that it's now been over 85 years since Queen Mary first hit the water, and even more astounding that we still have her today in the condition that she's in. The reality is that the Queen Mary was wildly over-engineered and constructed on an extremely solid design, and this was not by accident. With the British government's original agreement to fund the construction of ocean liners like this, and as part of the agreement for the loan you recall at the beginning of Part 1, where the Cunard and White Star Line were were forced to be combined in order to uh, fund this project, there was an expectation that she was to be used in time of war should the situation arise. So from the very beginning, the Queen Mary was subject to the strict engineering standards of the British Admiralty, including that her stern and hull were to be over twice what was necessary for a typical passenger voyager like this, and well over 1.5 inches thick to add rigidity against collisions. The hull itself was also designed to be what was referred to as a double hull, meaning the interior walls were also fitted with a waterproof internal metal surface, making it even more resistant to flooding or sinking. Basically, both the internal wall and the external wall of the hull were just as waterproof as each other. Which, thank God, because when the Mary did strike the HMS Kurosawa, the front was completely crumpled, but because of the double hull, it was not able to sink her. 
Not only did she have 18 watertight compartments in the form of her engine rooms, boiler rooms, generator rooms, cargo holds, etc., but the spaces in between the double-walled halls were divided into an additional 66 containers of their own. All of this over-engineering and redundancy in design was for a single purpose. It made it so that the Queen Mary and her running mate, the Queen Elizabeth, would be prepared for war and to transport whatever the government might need. The decks were designed with a higher degree of redundant strength in order to be capable of carrying tanks and heavy artillery. Modern cruise ships of the time didn't have any of the same kind of design requirements in mind. She's strong, resilient, built for war. Despite her age and wear, a recent maritime survey discovered that her hull is overall in excellent condition and deemed to be well within normal stress ranges. She should be able to go on floating on her own for many more years. However, despite her structural security, the Queen Mary faces additional future challenges, forcing her into some type of limbo. I will say that this next part that I'm about to read, quote, that I researched was written before I found out some more information. So I'll add that at the end. Um, I don't want to change all of the tenses of this, but at the moment that this was written, uh, there was a lot of insecurity. And here's why. The global pandemic of 2020 and 2021 forced a temporary closure of the ship. The company that held the lease to operate the ship, Eagle Hospitality Trust, filed for bankruptcy protection in January 2021 and agreed to surrender its lease in June. The city of Long Beach, which owns the ship and the property around it, said Eagle Hospitality defaulted on several provisions of the lease, including failure to properly maintain the aging ship. As of February 2022, so now, a $5 million repair project has begun to reopen the Mary to the public. The upgrades will include the renovation of, deteriora of deteriorating lifeboats that exert stress and create severe cracks in the ship's support system, the city said in a news release. Thirteen original lifeboats will be removed from the ship and temporarily stored while the city determines whether or not there is interest from museums and other nonprofit groups to preserve them. I think this article might not have the most up-to-date information, actually, now that I look back at it, because from my, from my understanding, and this is from somebody who worked uh, on the ship, only two of the remaining lifeboats are actually original as of this point, and that was a secret that was really well kept. Um, the boat was never designed to carry the weight of all those lifeboats for this long, so it's having significant cracks in the structure and the, the, the beams holding them up. So they will be replaced with lightweight replicas, so it will still have the same look. But all but two of the lifeboats are not original at this point, and those two are to stay on the ship, and they're going to develop a new um, exhibit specifically to celebrate them. So they're not leaving. They will still be on the boat. So I actually think it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea to do everything that we can to allow the Queen Mary to carry as little stress as possible. I think replacing the funnels was also a great idea because I think the old ones were significantly heavier than the ones that they could make today. So... Um, the city also plans to install permanent bilge pumps to remove water intrusion in the event of an emergency and make um, significant improvements to the bulkhead, emergency generator, and the water intrusion warning system, according to the city. Other electrical work, including lighting for one of the ship's massive exhaust funnels, has already been completed. So they are estimated to do an additional – the, the city is going going ahead and putting in $5 million of work into the Mary, which also raises suspicions to me that perhaps somebody has been selected to retake over the lease at this point. 
And who's to say that Disney couldn't take it back over? I don't know. But if they're putting, if the city's willing to spend $5 million on her and they weren't willing to put any money into working on uh, the potential of Port Disney, it does make one wonder if there is a pretty significant investor or significant project in mind to restore her. And based on the interview that Amy Bruni has uh, in her episode, it definitely suggests that there is lots of intention of reopening her and keeping her open for a long time to come, which is great news. Previous studies since 2017 estimated that the ship does need a significant amount of help. Uh, the estimated amount is about $289 million in renovations and upgrades to keep parts of it from flooding and going out of style or out of date. Um, I can only imagine that many things on the boat are about to go out of code in terms of like electrical and all that good stuff. Because while stunning, she is starting to show a little bit of her age, as is expected. I'm not... I'm not judging. We don't ask a lady her age, but she is a stately old dame at this point, and she does need a lot of a lot of uh, updates. According to inspection reports released last year by city-hired marine engineering firm Elliott Bay Design Group, the Queen Mary needs 23 million in immediate repairs to prevent it from potentially capsizing. So, all hands on deck when it comes to saving the Queen Mary, and I'm very excited to see what happens overall. She is an excellent help, but she does need a lot of support and encouragement to keep her from any corrosion from the ocean, etc. Now, to close out our episode, it's been a long journey together. I wanted to read a little story that I found. I was digging to try and find as many true stories as I could about people's experiences on the Mary, but I didn't find as many as I expected, but I did find this one. And this one, ironically, is called All Hands Still on Queen Mary's Ghostly Deck. This spring, my daughter and then the entire family, my son, daughter, and myself, visited the Queen Mary in Long Beach, California in May of 2004. During the visits, we got much more than we ever planned on. Some of it we even got on film. A little background first. The RMS Queen Mary was a passenger liner built in the heyday of the transatlantic passenger cruise services. She was a troop ship during World War II and was retired from service in 1969 when air travel had effectively replaced passenger ships. The Queen Mary was brought to Long Beach and became a permanent dockside attraction. In the ship's long and illustrious service, there were many happy and tragic moments associated with the great ship. Some individuals seem to be reliving these moments many years after they have passed on from the ship and from their mortal coil. My daughter and her Girl Scout troop actually visited the ship last month in April, and she encouraged me to bring her back. Part of what encouraged me was several pictures she had took which couldn't be explained. One of them had a glowing ball of light that there was no possible explanation for, and another contained a picture of a little girl leaning in on a conversation among the Girl Scouts. Well, what's so amiss about that? None of the Scout troop remembers ever seeing another girl there, not to mention there's no place for her to be standing. When we visited the ship, my daughter insisted that we take the ghost tour to see the more interesting parts of the ship. When the tour reached the first-class pool, something truly interesting happened. My daughter and I had the sense that we weren't alone, and I don't mean the tour staff or fellow tourists. At various areas, I felt strongly compelled to take photos to document what I was feeling. This culminated in... This culminated when the guide took my kids and I back to the changing stalls behind the pool. I wrote up a brief description in haste and left it with the tour office on the promenade, but it doesn't give the feel of what is about to happen, nor do I believe will this. 
When I entered the stalls area, I immediately felt something wasn't right and we weren't completely alone. I could feel and hear movement closely and at the end of the hallway when there shouldn't have been any. There was also a slight fragrance that at the time I discounted, but didn't match with anyone else on the tour. As I started to depart, I thought I saw movement at the end of the hall. So after presenting and holding my 35mm camera to my chest, I attempted to take a picture without giving away that I was taking the shot. I was using a Minolta Maxim 3XI with an IR rangefinder for autofocus function and using 400 speed high definition film for all of you camera people out there. Normally, this is a really quick camera to find its target and set itself. It took the camera about two seconds to find its range as it focused in and out several times to find a target, and I got much more than I bargained for. As I turned to leave the stalls, I sent my children ahead of me. Turning the corner to go into the main pool area, I felt two distinctly female hands slide up along the sides of my waist and felt the thumbs of each hand press lightly but firmly into my kidneys. I was then physically pulled backwards about six inches to one foot. The pull was strong enough that I threw my arms out to the sides to catch the doorframe of the entranceway. What's odd about this? The nearest living person to me other than my children was our male guide, who was over five feet away from me. There was no one there. Additionally, the hands, quote-unquote, slid through rather than under the camera case that was hanging on my right side and over the waist and hip. The camera case was never moved aside or jiggled by the, quote, hands. My daughter later told me she turned and saw me being pulled backwards. When the photos were developed, many had questionable images, but three were distinctly unexplainable. One showed a glowing object in the lower right corner of the exposure. Beyond the oddness of a glowing object, its location in real space would have it hovering over the end of the pool slide about six feet above the bottom of an empty pool. Another picture showed the outlines of three faces, or torsos, at the end of the pool changing area. One even appears to be turning towards the camera with a very annoyed look on its face. Story submitted by J.B. Smith. And here, yet again, I'm afraid, is where our journey with the Queen Mary ends for now. While so much is still up in the air, so much is in play, so much is going to be changing for the next few months and next few years, I'm sure there will be a follow-up to kind of keep all my listeners updated on what's going on at the Queen Mary and what its plans are for continued renovations and restorations. But for the moment, uh, this, this is everything that we know. We've covered... Her creation, we covered her first few years as a luxury transatlantic transportation vessel. We covered her extensive transition to a wartime vessel and later retrofitting back into a vessel for transportation and her part that she played as a means of escaping to a better world, especially for the refugees escaping Europe during World War II. And now today we've covered her her time in the hands of the Walt Disney Company as well as as well as her time docked at the pier in Long Beach, California. And so for now, that's where I'll leave you. I hope you guys enjoyed this two-part deep dive, our first ever two-parter 
So let me know if you enjoyed that and we can do some more in the future. But for now, take care. This has been an episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, written, researched, and edited by your host, Jeremy Haig. I would be honored if you'd consider one friend that you think might enjoy this episode and share it with them. There's nothing that brings me more joy than listening to episodes or songs that my friends recommend. So please share the love with your tribe. Listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment so that this one-man operation can take off to a whole new group of listeners. Please don't forget to visit my website, www.whenwallscantalktarot.com to learn more about me, the show, and to purchase our brand new merch finally available on our online shop. Listeners to the podcast get an exclusive 10% off using the code WITCHCREW at checkout. Don't forget to reach out to me on Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces or email me at jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com. So long, paranormal adventures, and I will see you next time on When Walls Can Talk. <laughs>